Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, and I'm just reminding you, of course, to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. We're available on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available at poppantheonpod.com, and of course, our Patreon show, Pop Pantheon All Access, is available at patreon.com slash poppantheon. And over there, we're doing at least three bonus episodes of this podcast per month. Can you believe that? At least three episodes more than you're already getting. That's incredible. Lastly, my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is having two new installments in the coming weeks. The first is a Halloween Spooky Gorgeous in Brooklyn on October 27th at the Sultan Room. And then on November 10th in LA, we will be at Resident for our West Coast girlies. So if you are in either of those places, tickets are available in the show notes of this episode. And of course, our first live show, Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's memoir, music, and legacy will be at the Crawford Auditorium in Pasadena on November 2nd. Tickets for that will also be available in the show notes of this episode. All right, that's our housekeeping. This week's episode is a trip down memory lane for me into two sisters whose careers may not be the most important of their particular milieus, but provide very interesting insight into a lot of movements in pop music, in pop stardom, in pop culture, a return to some music that is great, some music that is less good, but still interesting to talk about. And I think most pertinently to me, it was a very enlightening view into the way that certain moments in pop culture can really seem one way when you're living through them. And then when you watch the long tail seem entirely different. So without getting too much into spoilers, here is Pop Pantheon, Jessica and Ashley Simpson. Let's get something out of the way. Neither Jessica nor Ashley Simpson were particularly great pop stars. Both made some decent music, actually one way more than the other, but we'll get to that later, captured the zeitgeist for a brief instant, and are indelible to a cohort who were just the right age for their fleeting moment of centrality. More intriguing than as traditional capital P pop stars, though, are the way both sisters' narratives and music snake through broader, mega-important cultural movements. The legendary teen pop boom of the late 90s, and the reactionary return of guitars to the genre, the intersection of Christian values and Lolita sexuality, MTV, TRL, notions of credibility and nepotism, the concept of pop stars as quote-unquote brands that extend far beyond music, the dawn of reality TV, imperative of pop star accessibility, and how the power of retrospect can create a version of events that feels wholly divorced from how careers might have felt to those who experienced them firsthand. Jessica and Ashley were not the most dynamic or influential pop stars of their generation, but their stories are a fascinating and it turns out extraordinarily fun way to both look back at a singular moment in pop history and to understand completely essential elements of pop's present. Jessica 
Jessica and Ashley Simpson were born in Texas. The elder, Jessica, in 1980, and Ashley four years later. Their father, Joe, was a minister and mother, Tina, a homemaker. Ushered along by Joe, who became the original dadager, so to speak, Jessica sang in the church choir as a child and auditioned for the Mickey Mouse Club at age 12. She made it to the finals alongside Christina Aguilera and Justin Timberlake, but failed to snag a spot as a Mouseketeer. Jessica had a solid if unremarkable singing voice and all-American beauty queen looks and charm, which, as a teen, helped her land a record deal with a Christian label and record a debut record, which was shelved when the company went belly up. The recording, however, caught the attention of empresario Tommy Mottola, who, in searching for a new iteration of his recently divorced wife Mariah Carey, signed Jessica to Columbia Records. Her debut single, the treacly devotional sub ballad I Wanna Love You Forever, shot to number three on the Hot 100 and went platinum giving Jessica a taste of overnight success. Her debut album, 1999's Sweet Kisses, produced two more singles, Where You Are, an aggressively anodyne and chaste duet with her then-boyfriend Nick Lachey of third-tier boy band 98 Degrees, and the effervescent Jack and Diane sampling mid-tempo banger I Think I'm In Love With You, which cracked the top 40. Sweet Kisses was a decent success, selling 2 million copies in the US and landing her a spot, albeit a lower rung one, in the new TRL-era pop princess pecking order, which included much bigger stars like Britney Spears, Aguilera, and Mandy Moore. Jessica returned in 2001 with Irresistible, a much more lascivious Britney-aping electro R&B number that became a moderate hit on the charts and soared on MTV, where Jessica was a staple. But her robotic sophomore album of the same name received unflattering comparisons to both Spears and Aguilera and fizzled commercially. Strangely enough, Jessica's career apex and most enduring mark on pop culture came two years later and had very little to do with music. Her smash hit reality show, Newlyweds Nick and Jessica, premiered in 2003 and provided a behind-the-scenes look at her marriage to Lachey. Newlyweds featured Jessica playing up her daffy blonde public persona while Nick inhabited the hot but curmudgeonly more salt-of-the-earth husband. The show helped define early reality TV and featured a moment that is perhaps more memorable to most than any of Jessica's music, in which she famously could not discern if a can of tuna was chicken or fish. The success of Newlyweds buoyed the sales of Jessica's third album, 2003's In This Skin, which moved 7 million copies and produced what is perhaps her signature song, the ultra-light stuttering country-nodding With You, which peaked at number 14. Ashley, meanwhile, had moved with the Simpson family to LA to chase Jessica's dreams. While Jessica went on tour, Ashley, who'd started studying ballet at three, joined her as a backup dancer. While her sister's star was rising, Ashley auditioned for acting gigs, landing small roles before becoming a series regular on the popular Christian family soap, Seventh Heaven. In 2003, she worked as a VJ on MTV before Joe, fresh off the success of Newlyweds, helped mastermind a reality show of her own, The Ashley Simpson Show, on the network. Launched in the summer of 2004, the series documented the start of Ashley's music career, from signing a record deal with Geffen to recording her debut album, Autobiography, which would be released a month into the show's run. The show and the album were designed to set Ashley apart as the scrappier, less conventionally beautiful and talented, at least vocally, sister, but one who was nonetheless more inclined towards quote-unquote authenticity, i.e. music with guitars and angsty, darker singer-songwriter reflections on her own life experience, which contrasted against Jessica's Barbie good looks and glossy, empty pop bubbles. 
The whole endeavor also situated her in a broader wave of anti-Britney and by extension anti-Jessica pop stars, spearheaded by Avril Lavigne, who were using rock signifiers to dress up their pop as credible against the perceived artificiality of the dance pop divas who then ruled MTV. Autobiography, a very good album, treated in big electric guitars and smartly utilized both Ashley's raspy voice to create the feeling of edge and relatability, as well as the show's narrative to help create a vehicle for her underdog persona and provide depth and context for these songs. It was brilliantly produced by John Shanks, who'd worked with Stevie Nicks, Melissa Etheridge, and Michelle Branch, and co-written with Cara Diaguardi, a pop rock mastermind who'd penned music for everyone from Hilary Duff to Kelly Clarkson to Yes... Jessica Simpson. Ashley's debut single, The Certified Slammer, Pieces of Me, hit the top five, and off the back of it and her hit reality show, Autobiography went on to sell three million copies. But as fast as she'd risen, so would Ashley fall, in some ways bringing the entire Simpson pop dynasty down with her. In October 2004, Ashley appeared on a fateful episode of Saturday Night Live that's since gone down fairly and unfairly as one of pop history's greatest blunders. Having already performed Pieces of Me earlier in the night, Ashley appeared for her second number. But instead of playing the next song, her drummer accidentally triggered the vocal track for Pieces of Me once again, revealing that Ashley had been lip syncing in her first performance. Obviously flummoxed, Ashley did an awkward jig and then left the stage, later blaming the incident on acid reflux and explaining she was on doctor's orders not to sing. She was relentlessly mocked following SNL, and her career pretty much fell into a ditch as a result. Her next album, 2005's I Am Me, sold a third of autobiography, and her third and final album, 2008's Bittersweet World, was a commercial non-starter. In this period, Jessica split from Lachey, effectively ending newlyweds, and had a moderate success with 2006's gold certified a public affair. But her 2008 country foray, Do You Know, and 2010 Christmas album both failed to make an impact and became her final solo releases. Both sisters have, however, remained public figures. Jessica went on to create a billion-dollar retail empire with her fashion label, The Jessica Simpson Collection, and landed on the New York Times bestseller list in 2020 with her headline-grabbing memoir, Open Book. Ashley, meanwhile, remained a tabloid staple, first for her marriage to Fall Out Boy's Pete Wentz, then her second marriage to Evan Ross, the son of pop icon Diana Ross. She and Evan starred in another short-lived reality show in 2018, and Ashley appeared on the West End and Broadway in the role of Roxy Hart in the musical Chicago. Jessica Simpson has sold 20 million albums worldwide. She has two platinum albums and three gold albums. She has one platinum single and four gold singles, one top five single, and six top 20 singles. Jessica has 16 Choice Awards, two People's Choice Awards, and an ASCAP Pop Music Award. Ashley has two platinum albums, two number one albums, one top five single, and two gold singles. She has two Teen Choice Awards and one ASCAP Award. Here with me to discuss the careers of Jessica and Ashley Simpson is Beyond the Blinds host, Troy McKeady. Uh -huh. 
Okay, I'm here once again with one of my favorite people to do podcasting with, <laughs> Beyond the Blinds host, Troy McKeady. Troy, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. This is like a real honor for me. You know that. I'm so happy that you feel that way because you have been part of some of the best Pop Pantheon episodes ever. Our TRL episode like goes down in history as one of my all-time favorite things that we've ever done on the show. And our Blackout episode on Patreon was a formative part of our Patreon channel and of course is perfect fodder for us to plug the fact that Troy, of course, is going to be one of my panelists at the first Pop Pantheon live show, which will be a mere three weeks after this episode drops. So Troy's going to be with me in LA talking about Britney and her memoir and her music and her legacy. And we were just talking about this off mic, but I am so excited for that. I literally cannot wait to do that show with you. Well, let me just first say that that TRL episode that we recorded together is formative for me. That was probably one of my favorite things I've ever recorded mm. ever in like seven years of doing this. Wow. I really love that so much. I always love being on this show. I think that you are so smart and so talented and so oh, funny. Troy. And I'm excited to do your live show. I'm like really, really, really looking forward to it. We are so honored to have you and the feeling is 100% mutual. A legend in the space. So <laughs> I am honored to talk to you every single time. And also, we have fun, don't we, Troy? We do. We kiki. We cluck. We kiki. <laughs> and also, we've picked a topic where we can cluckety cluck 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 it up, I think, today. It's not unrelated to Britney. This is the first time we've done an episode in this specific format, but this episode is covering two pop stars, sisters from the same time period as our girl, Britney, mm -hmm. and one of whom has a story and musical career that's deeply tied to Britney, and I'm sure Britney will come up a number of times in discussing her. So we're talking about Jessica and Ashley Simpson. Also two artists that I don't think, for better or worse, are taken particularly seriously in the context of pop history or the pop pantheon. I had a really funny experience where I'm dating somebody that's younger than I, of a different generation. <laughs> okay. As I was prepping for this episode, we were together and I told him, I'm listening to all of Jessica's music. I'm listening to all of Ashley's music. And then at some point I turned to him and I was like, hey, off rip, can you name a song by Jessica Simpson? And he was like, without hesitation, no. Wow. And I said, can you name an Ashley song? And he was like, without hesitation, no. Now, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and tell you that I sang him, I think I'm in love with you. I sang him with you. I sang him, peace of me. He recognized them. Sure. But it wasn't like he remembered those as Ashley and Jessica Simpson songs. So I think a couple of artists that meant a lot to a group of people that were born within a specific four-year window, but have very much receded as pop figures to most people. And then the last thing that I'll say in setting this up is... I think it's funny because I think looking back and the way that we lived through Jessica and Ashley's career, mm. Jessica was very obviously the more quote unquote important, bigger deal pop figure at the moment. Sure. I mean, as she was presented to us, it was as part of this group of female pop artists, Brittany, Christina, Mandy, Jessica, Willa, yes. Christina, Milia, and Samantha Bowman. They were a very important group of artists to our generation. And she was positioned as this inheritor to the sort of diva soul of a Mariah Carey and a Whitney Houston and she had a big record label deal and she had a big voice and she looked like a Barbie doll and it had all the trappings of an important major label pop product. Right. Whereas Ashley felt very much like an afterthought I mean, of course, she had her moment of massive success, and we're going to get into all the details, the nooks and crannies of all of that. But it always felt like Ashley wouldn't have existed necessarily in the pop space without Jessica being there first. Yeah, That was how it at least registered to me when I was living through it. But it's really funny because looking back, 
I almost felt like it's reversed in terms of who's more memorable, who made (laughs) better music, and who has left a more indelible mark on pop history. It feels like without context in all of those categories, at least in my estimation, that's Ashley's crown to take in general. Yeah. I'm curious what you make of all of that as sort of an introductory question and what your general feelings on Jessica and Ashley are before we get into the specifics here. Well, for one thing, I completely agree with you. I definitely think looking back at the time, it felt almost like Beyonce Solange. Yes, right. Very that. The superstar's little sister is doing her music thing now, and I hope Big Sister approves. And Mm -hmm. it's such a big deal for Jessica to listen to Ashley's album because Jessica is the superstar and it was this it's your turn kind of thing right but looking back i'm like i'm coming out with a controversial opinion right from the top come forth this is a safe space for all of her opinions (laughs) musically i believe that looking back there's a whole number of things that jessica simpson could have done music just so happened to be one of them and right it turns out she's like this ball busting career woman anyway so it doesn't even matter (laughs) ashley to me was actually meant to be a musician Mm. Interesting. I hate to use the term real musician because what does that even mean? But she felt really deeply passionate about music to me in a way that Jessica just never did. And I also, looking back, Jessica must have been livid that Ashley, for her debut, basically got to pick her producers, pick her songwriters, Mm. pick her label. She then got to record any kind of music she wanted to. Right. The whole album was like a dream for an artist, and it was total Nepo baby shit, you know? (laughs) 100%. She got handed the music business career of her dreams. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to undermine Ashley's innate talents, because I think that they exist, but she's not exactly the most natural talent. She's not a Taylor Swiftian songwriter. She's not a great singer. She's kind of like the plucky younger sister character. So yeah, you're right. It's kind of insane to get handed that on your debut album. Must have been pretty eyebrow raising for Jessica. Especially as like a very, very, very young girl who's just kind of like, I don't like that. I don't like wearing this color. No, dad. (laughs) She doesn't even really know how lucky she is. And at the same time, her sister, who has literally worked to the bone in this industry by the time she's like 23, Mm -hmm. she's being told to re-sing her whole album so that she sounds Britney Spears. You know what I mean? (laughs) Jessica just got the shit into the stick in many ways, but at the time, we didn't recognize it that way. She seemed like the enchanted lucky one, and Ashley seemed like the downtrodden, unlucky one for some reason, but it wasn't really like that. No. Well, also, Jessica was the much more conventionally beautiful one. The narrative around Ashley was she's the ugly duckling. I completely agree with you in that from Jump, Ashley has this very fully formed musical identity and persona. Whereas going back through this Jessica music, it's a whole lot of nothingness. And I'm not saying that there isn't good songs in there that I like, and we're going to talk about all of the moments. And it's fascinating in its vacuousness as an artist without a drift, an artist with a really nice voice, a great kind of Southern gospel, i.e. white Southern gospel singing voice, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) who stumbled into a couple really memorable songs, but also never landed on a convincing musical identity, had broad charisma, but nothing really specific or interesting about herself as an artist and also always felt like a bit of an also ran. I mean, I think one interesting thing about Jessica is that she 
always felt like she was kind of third or fourth string in her generation of pop stars. And I think her music reflects that. Yeah. We'll talk about this, but you listen to a song like Irresistible and it's so obvious how much that's aping Britney and how it's kind of a sub Britney impersonation or even her early material, how sub Mariah is, yeah. how clearly she's a cipher for mm. a better, more interesting, more dynamic, more fully formed pop figure. And she didn't have a ton of massive success or singles. I mean, I think also there is this feeling around that TRL generation of pop stars that there's like a sense of importance around them to our generation because they just represented a very specific part of our identity in childhood. So they get elevated mm -hmm. because they were part of that specific six-year moment of TRL's dominance. But in reality, you go back and look at Jessica's single track record. I mean, she had three or four hit songs. Her albums performed kind of middlingly. She only released four. The other thing about both of them that really interestingly ties them together is around 2008 or so, they both kind of hung it up in the music department just kind of voluntarily, which is also a really interesting facet of both their careers. But yeah, my top line takeaway from the deep dive recently was that it's fascinating how things can seem this one way when you're living through it. Mm -hmm. To anyone that didn't live through that, it just seemed like no matter what, even when Ashley was having her success, that Jessica was the much more important, bigger, the more real thing happening, weirdly enough, even though she was seen as very manufactured. It's just funny how the sands of time can make things seem different. And 20 years later, we look back on this, and I think there's so much more to say about Ashley's music, and it's held up so much better, and I think probably is more memorable to a lot of people than a lot of Jessica's music. And it's just fascinating to look back and you go to their Spotify numbers, Troy, and they have exactly the same number of monthly listeners. Wow. And it's a pathetic number. It's 700,000 each. Wow. And it's all us. And it's all us. It's just me and you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's me and you preparing for this episode. But yeah, I just thought that that was really interesting. And I can't wait to unfurl the story because it's a fascinating little snippet of pop culture that I feel like gets into a lot of interesting other parts of pop culture. It provides four rays into talking about TRL forays into talking about bigger important pop stars from that area. It provides forays into talking about the pop rock movement of the early 2000s, everything from Avril to Kelly to Pink to all of the micro movements that they were parts of, not the most important parts of by any means, but sort of there. And also reality TV 1.0. I mean, both of them are products of celebrity. Celebrity and really utilized that, especially for Jessica. I think whatever longevity her career had, she's mostly memorable for tuna fish. Yeah. The other thing that I just want to say without airing my boyfriend out too fucking hard is the one thing that he could name off rip and could literally do the dance to oh God. was the SNL fuck up. Oh God, of course. To a generation that didn't live through her musical career. That's the most iconic thing that has lived on about Ashley Simpson. Yeah. And I think tangentially, you could say the same thing about Chicken of the Sea yeah. for Jessica Simpson. More so than either of their music, these two moments of television history or faux pas <laughs> in the television space. Right. Memes in some ways, pre-memes, are the things that have really been the indelible mark that the two have left on pop culture to many more so than their music, which I thought was very interesting. Well, you brought up a really good point about Jessica's standing amongst the girls. Yeah. And I think the last time you and I talked, I told you that my way of keeping track of all of this in my head mm -hmm. is I put them in these Romeo and Michelle tiers, like A group, B group, C group. Yes. And Jessica, she's so perfectly occupied B group. 
Because <laughs> she wasn't Britney and she wasn't Christina, who were clearly A. Yes. She wasn't Mandy Moore, who was C. Mm, interesting. You think Mandy was below Jessica? I do. Pre-newlyweds or after newlyweds? Well, after for sure. Right. I kind of think pre-newlyweds, Mandy was bigger. Yes, I agree with that. I always kind of gauge it based on who were they asked about. Right. Britney was asked about the whole group of girls because they were all being compared to her. Right. Jessica would be asked about Britney and Christina. Yeah. Mandy would be asked about Jessica, Britney, and Christina. This is the shit that goes through my brain. Does that make sense? Yes. And Willow would be asked about all of them. Exactly. She'd be asked about all of them on the other end of the spectrum of Britney. Yeah. It's just funny the space that Jessica occupied. And you brought up the reality thing. And it's just such a weird thing to look back. Like when you rewatch Newlyweds and you see that Jessica, without realizing it, is building this corporation around her just based on existing. Totally. It's like Kardashian 1.0. Oh, it's full influencer before we knew what to call it. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yes. And your point about her being early on that trend, I really like your point because that was always also the narrative about Jessica and Ashley was, Jessica can really sing. She's got the voice. She's a musician and Ashley's just a wannabe or whatever. Right. And really the reverse seems true in retrospect. And you're so right. Jessica has ultimately had way more success in her extra musical endeavors than she ever had as a musician. And she was prescient about that. Right. As people who lived through it, I remember... I worked at the mall while <laughs> Newlyweds was airing. Honestly, I think same, to be honest with you. <laughs> this is the perfect era to have worked at the mall, too. For sure. My Club Monaco era. <laughs> oh, God. I was stocking fucking Hollister shelves. I don't even want to get into it. <laughs> I don't even want to get into it. It's a rite of passage, Troy. It is a rite of passage, especially for a homosexual. Yes. <laughs> but I definitely remember not even just my store, but the mall in general, literally tripping over their own feet to keep up with Jessica Simpson's newly wedged trends. Yes, right. And I remember them almost in order. She really was influencing youth culture in a way that people did not expect. And then I don't think people expected Ashley to do the extreme in her own way. Mm. Because when Ashley took off, the girls all... All started dyeing their hair. Mm. Everybody started dressing completely different. Mm. Ashley's influence on youth female culture was so insane. I don't think that anybody in their family predicted that people would take to her in such an extreme way, especially when she dyed her hair. Yeah. That moment when she dyed her hair black, it's a formative millennial moment. Totally. That was documented on the show, which I got completely wrapped up in watching yesterday. <laughs> Me too! We'll get to this later, but like, I couldn't get through <laughs> Newlyweds more than a few episodes because I just find Nick Lachey is so needlessly cruel to Jessica the entire time that it honestly makes my stomach churn. I know. But Ashley's show, I was like, I am so in this. I'm rooting for her. I want her album to come out. Yeah. There's a lot of dramatic tension knowing that the SNL thing is going to come up at a certain point. She's got a very winningly guileless persona. It was fun. I was like, I'll watch a few episodes of this just to acclimate myself to the show. And I ended up sitting on my entire flight for six hours yesterday watching most of the episodes of Ashley's show. All right. So we'll get into all of the details of this. Let's take a rewind. And just in broad strokes, what do we need to know about Jessica and Ashley? Ashley's early life that feels pertinent to understanding their respective rises in pop stardom? Well, I think it's important for people to know that they're like a Southern Partridge family kind of vibe. Right. Everybody's all in. Mom is on tour with the girls. Dad is the manager. Right. Ashley's the backup dancer or backup singer. Jessica's the star. And then Ashley becomes a star. It's a family business. Right. Joe Simpson 
is the original Chris Jenner. Who is their dad, for anyone that doesn't know. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Speaking in shorthand about the Simpson family. <laughs> Joe Simpson, he's the original dadager. Right. And that was such an interesting part of their whole vibe that they stem from church vibes. They're a church-going Southern family. Jessica had these aspirations to be a gospel artist, and her dad wanted her to be a gospel artist. And in his own words, she was just too damn sexy to do gospel. Mm. She had them big things, as he refers to them as her breasts. Mm -hmm. And she just, no matter how hard they tried to keep her locked up, she was just too sexy. She was bouncing everywhere. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'll never forget Joe Simpson's inappropriate comments on Jessica's physical appearance and how uncomfortable that was. <laughs> right? Oh my God. <laughs> so they're church-going family, that all-American pop star story of Jessica singing in church. Also, I think it feels important to say that Jessica's from the beginning, auditions for the Mickey Mouse Club and doesn't get it, right? Yeah, and that's a very formative thing for her that she didn't get it because it really set her up to be that boldly B-tier girl for the rest <laughs> of her career. She got it. How different would that look? Yeah, it, honestly, it wouldn't have worked. No. It wouldn't have suited because Jessica is defined by not being the one. <laughs> it's true. It's kind of her thing. Is Ashley aspiring to be a singer or performer simultaneously to this? What is her role in the family? dynamic as they're ushering Jessica along towards teen pop stardom. So Ashley was the dancer. Right. She was the dancer of the family. And one of the things that I love about the Ashley Simpson show is you learn a lot of that stuff about pre-knowing who Jessica Simpson was, Ashley. Right. She really wanted to study ballet and travel all over the world doing the Nutcracker <laughs> and stuff. That was her dream. She backup danced for Jessica and it was a real Partridge family. We help each other grow kind of thing. Yes. I know that we're going to talk about the Ashley Simpson show, but it is funny when I think about it now as a fully fledged adult, why people took to her so much, she had this idea her whole life that she was the ugly one compared to her sister. Right. Because it should be noted that Jessica really had that conventionally Barbie beautiful look yes. that was emblematic of that specific period of popular culture. Blonde hair, curvaceous but super skinny, very conventionally beautiful looking face, this ditzy persona. <laughs> she had a very specific form of female beauty standard of that particular period. She was the platonic ideal of that. Almost shocking that a person could be born so perfect based on the beauty standards. Yeah. Like, are you really a human person? <laughs> Even more so than Britney in some ways. Yes. Just this glowing beauty. Yes. And you look back and Ashley that whole time felt so ugly and she was so open and honest about it. Like, I am the ugly sister compared to my beautiful blonde sister. And conventionally talented, big, beautiful singing voice. Yeah. A songbird. Mm -hmm. Ashley's not going to be in a gown singing like, you know. It's actually arguable whether she can sing at all. Yes. <laughs> then that we'll get into. <laughs> yes. But I think young people really took to Ashley because she didn't know how cool she was. And then she realized how cool she was. And what made her cool was not being Jessica. Mm. It was not being conventionally attractive. It was not being a songbird. It was not being blonde. All the things that made Ashley really cool was the opposite of that. Right. And the power of her discovering that while a bunch of people are going through puberty was very powerful. A hundred percent. I think that's very important for setting up both of their narratives. So I guess maybe more for Jessica in specific, because we're going to touch on Jessica first. First, obviously, she is the one that emerges initially. She's the centerpiece of the Simpson family narrative for the first swing of it. Right. So when Jessica 
decides to make the transition from aspiring to be a gospel star to being a more conventional pop star. Are there specific pop stars that precede her that feel important to understanding her aspirations? Who do you think Jessica is looking at in the pop space in 1995, 1996, 1997 that feels informative to her own vision for herself in pop stardom? Well, I think she's definitely very inspired by that mid to late 90s songbird thing, the Mariah thing, yes. the Whitney thing, yes. the Celine thing. She was honestly a VH1 artist initially. She was adult contemporary in the way that Christina Aguilera debuted with a Mulan song. Yeah, right. When they were like, oh, I guess she's a pop star. Right. It was very that. She was like a Faith Hill inspired kind of gal, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Faith Hill is good too. I like that. Because she is a Southern girl and eventually she does pivot back to actually making country music. Her last album in 2008 is a attempt to recontextualize Jessica as a country artist, which is interesting. Yeah. She said, look out, Shania. And Joe is essentially Svengali-ing this entire thing. He is, as you said, the original datager. They have one failed record deal initially when Jessica's a teenager. There's an unreleased album that never comes out. How does Jessica end up eventually coming into contact with Tommy Mottola and signing her deal? What do we understand about that whole moment in Jessica's rise? Well, like you said, her dad was really steamrolling this whole thing. And he was like, my daughter is going to be a fucking star. It's going to happen. Yes. And you had mentioned that the Mickey Mouse Club thing didn't work out for her so it set her on this totally different path than the rest of the girls Mm -hmm. it seemed like they were all just gonna shoot straight to the top right they're gonna just get to choose what record deal they want and then there's me right (laughs) but she ends up taking this more traditional kind of mariah carey-esque role right where she was introduced to tommy matola which i can't imagine what it feels like to be a young female pop star being introduced to tommy matola of all people yes just the fear of even being in the same room as a man like that right who's also in this exact moment has just been thrown over by Mariah publicly. Right. And everybody is up for grabs as the new muse. Right. And then JLo's like, hi. Yes. Hi. <laughs> My name's Jennifer Lopez. Nice to meet you. Yes. Except Jennifer Lopez is coming to him as a fully fledged movie star who has her own currency and power in the world. Yes. Whereas Jessica's just this wide-eyed teenager looking for a break. So there's a lot more of like skewed power dynamic between Tommy and Jessica as there would be between Tommy and JLo when he signs her and she's already a superstar. Right. And I will say, not to say that Jessica in any way, shape, or form has been able to avoid the atrocities of the fucking music industry, but it must have been nice for her to have her dad. 100%, like kind of shepherding this along. My impression of the story is that Tommy sees her, he hears Jessica sing, and as we mentioned, Jessica is a good singer. She's not like the greatest singer of all time, but she's a platonically good, she would have done well on American Idol. Totally. That's such a good comparison. She has a good voice. I'd say it's not particularly special, but it's totally good. Yes. And of course, paired with her all-American Barbie girl looks, I think this is another important thing to highlight about this moment, which is that the way the record industry works is just totally different. Now, labels are looking for fully formed, personality-driven artists with their own following already to sign and shepherd to bigger stardom. In this day and age, people were often plucked out of nothingness. There was no way to sort of expand your audience in the pop field without the help of a major label in most instances. And you got kind of crafted. I think that that's a very 
very important element of this era of the music industry is that it was a very common thing to take someone who was just a raw talent who had no musical identity and didn't really have much going on outside of that raw talent and said, we're going to shape this and mold this to whatever it needs to be to have success. That's my impression of how Tommy saw Jessica. A broadly talented and beautiful girl with some star quality and charisma that they could do what they wanted with, more or less. Yeah, and to add to your point, I also think timing plays so much into this whole story of all of the different pop girls because we could have had 10 years of adult contemporary. It could have been 10 years of I turn to you. Right. Or who is the girl I see or whatever. It could have been that, but the timing of Britney signing that Jive contract Mm. and then determining what to do going forward, everybody that signed contracts had to revamp and rethink what they were going to be and where they were going to go. I think all the girls would have been doing adult contemporary VH1 music. Mm. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, we have to be slutty pop stars now. Right. So it's Baby One More Time coming out in September 98 that reorients the path of Jessica Simpson's career. In a sense. For sure. Yeah. So Britney explodes in 1998 and Jessica records and eventually releases her debut album, Sweet Kisses, in 1999. So there's your context for that. I think Christina comes before her as well. Yeah. Christina blows up in between Britney and Jessica's album coming out. I want to just close a fun personal story, which I actually think I have talked about on this podcast before. But as people might know, my dad is an entertainment attorney. And so when I was 10, 11... I was living in Westchester with my family and my dad would sort of take me to things that were part of his job sometimes and I'd get to meet cool people and he'd take me to concerts and whatever. And one Sunday afternoon, this is probably in 1998, I was probably 11 years old, he was like, oh, I'm going to see a new client of mine in the recording studio in some suburban town in Westchester. And she's going to be in the studio with Evan and Carl, who people might know are a production team that eventually discovered Rihanna and produced Shut Up and Drive and a couple of her early songs. Songs, I think maybe even pulling the replay, but we're at the time journeyman pop producers, essentially. My dad drives me 20 minutes from our house into a recording studio and I walk into the studio and it is Evan, Carl, and Jessica Simpson. Wow, holy shit. Yeah, I'm 11 years old. She is not famous at this point. She's just a talented young woman recording her debut album. And I sat in the recording studio and watched her record a song that eventually ended up on this record for a period of hours. And I just remember her being a very, very normal, very sweet and proper Southern, almost like a fun babysitter vibe. Oh, fun babysitter. That's so funny. Yeah, she was super sweet to me. I remember her being very down to earth. And that was one of my first important memories of my life. I just remember sitting in the studio and being very enamored with what was going on there. So I couldn't escape talking about this moment without sharing that little anecdote. Oh my God. So when she blew up, were you just like, holy shit, I know her? Yes, it was very 
cool. My dad was part of brokering her record deal whenever she signed it at whatever point. And I just have that very formative memory. I don't think they worked together for long after that. I think it was kind of just that one moment. But I did happen to have an interaction at 10 years old with Jessica Simpson right before she got famous. You got to put that in your book. Yeah, I will. It was a big moment for me. But anyway, <laughs> so she ends up releasing her debut album, Sweet Kisses. It is home to a couple of her most indelible hits to me, which are her debut single, I Want to Love You Forever, and the follow-up single, I Think I'm in Love With You. Can you describe to me what these songs sound like? I think we should talk about each one because they're sort of different from each other and how they each present Jessica and are perhaps responsive to some of the other artists and trends that clearly Tommy, Joe, and Jessica are trying to position her around. Let's start with I Want to Love You Forever as her first song. I hate to keep saying the same thing over and over, but such adult contemporary music. <laughs> it reminds me so much of Christina releasing that Mulan song as her first single. And when you look back, it's like, wait, what? Yes. That was this person's first song? I know, I know. Because we think about her persona forming around Genie in a Bottle and What a Girl Wants, etc. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To me, it's the idea of what they thought she would be. Right. They thought she'll be this white Mariah right. songbird, gowns, nobody on stage but the orchestra girl. It's a very Mariah song. I mean, there's elements of it that are kind of like my all. Yes. It's a big booming ballad in the style of those 90s big voiced divas. But she doesn't quite have Mariah's chops, charisma, vocal range. I mean, it's a good song, yes. but it definitely does not reach the heights of the great Mariah and Whitney songs. Yeah. It also has this chaste Christian devotionalism to it that I think runs through a lot of her music. The other thing to remember is that Jessica is a part of the sort of purity ring era. Mm -hmm. Jessica is one of these pop stars that's out there publicly stating that she's a virgin and that she's not going to have sex until she gets married. These other singers, they, they dress provocatively and stuff. And they and you're mainly going with your voice, and you dress conservatively, but you're also, aren't you saying? Didn't you, you say, say chastity? <laughs> didn't you chastity. say you'd save yourself for your husband, which I think is great? Is that true? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> A magazine asked me, you know, mm -hmm. they just asked me about it and I just told them that I was a virgin and all of a sudden it was like this huge thing that like yeah. I was saving myself for my husband and really it just was always something that was just a part of me and my life and I, I was shocked that it was like on the cover of newspapers yeah. and magazines and that it was such a big deal. So this song also has this melodramatic, chaste quality to it about meeting one man and being with them for the rest of your life and this very traditional American vibe to it and Christian vibe, which I think feels important speaking to this larger moment and what we wanted to expect from pop stars, i.e. that they be both virginic and also kind of sexualized because mm -hmm. she was both of those things. And then also, as you were saying, this transitional moment in pop more broadly where we hadn't quite 
leaned 100% into what Hit Me Baby One More Time's impact had made on the space in terms of leaning heavier into the sort of sexiness and away from the schmaltzy balladry. But it feels like an interesting reflection of both of those things. Do you like this song? I do not. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever in my whole life turned it on. No. I've only just heard it. It's seared into my mind, but when I played it in preparation for this, I was like, I don't think I've actually physically listened to this song since 2000. Yeah. I remember it so well, and yet I don't care for it that much. But I will tell you right now, still to this day, Jessica Simpson's highest charting single. This is Jessica Simpson's only top 10 single. That to me is mind bending. Berserk. That's some fucking Bermuda Triangle shit. Yes. This song hit number three. Her next single actually technically is a duet with Nick Lachey called Where You Are, which is, I don't think we need to say that much about it, but very schmaltzy. Yeah, (laughs) please. But a good foray to talk about another important element of this moment for Jessica, which is that she's in this public relationship with the lead singer of 98 Degrees, which also feels like an integral part of the teen pop boom generation of stars is who else amongst that boom are they having sexual or not sexual, let's say, maybe for Jessica was not sexual relations with. Was her relationship with Nick public at that point? So her relationship with Nick was public, but they were sort of like the Taco Bell to Britney and Justin's Chipotle. Yeah, I was going to say, it's always the second string feeling. Yeah, they had people that worshipped them, but you didn't come across them very often. Right. And I also think it's important to note, too, that at this time, everybody was looking for their sort of Diane Warren moment, too. Totally. It was like a real strategic thing to be like, let's start off with a Diane Warren thing and we'll fucking dominate adult contemporary and then we'll release a pop song. Yes. And also, I did want to add, too, to your earlier point, her virginity. Yes. That, to me, is the first marker of a stab in the back of Jessica Simpson by this industry. Mm. She just was kind of being her natural self. Right. I obviously don't think that her team and her dad and Tommy were aware that Britney's team was going to incorporate this virginity thing into her public persona either. Right. And that really maligned Jessica, who just literally was a Christian virgin. Right. It wasn't a marketing thing. It literally was how she grew up. And then all of a sudden it was this whole thing. And Britney felt like way more of just a pose or something like that. That wasn't really real. Yeah. And it's also just, is this how we as a culture were processing our guilt about this Lolita sexualization of teenagers? That we had to temper that by saying... But it's fine because they're virgins. It's like a thing that we needed as a culture. It's such a fascinating reflection of us to me when I think about this trend of virginic but simultaneously lascivious young female pop stars. So I've actually read a lot about this because I find it very interesting. Like you said, the reflection of us more so than the actual thing. What was going on? Yes. It was in one of those 8 million Britney documentaries that came out. Mm. And they talked about how Britney's career was very much maligned by the Monica Lewinsky scandal and how America had become just randomly super buttoned up about sexuality, very anti-women being sexual, and young girls were the most affected by that. Interesting. So then you saw this rise of virginity being very cool. Mm, That is so fascinating. It also kind of presages the election of George W. Bush, who was a return to Christian values in the White House. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so we have I Want to Love You Forever, a number three hit. We have Where You Are, which hits number six 
62 on the chart. <laughs> and then we have the third single, I Think I'm In Love With You, which is, Oof. I would describe it as a Mariah Carey, but in the mold of Dream Lover, kind of stomping mid-tempo, almost like post-New Jack Swing song that samples Jack and Diane by John Mellencamp. <laughs> yeah. I love this song. <laughs> I think this song is amazing. I really find this song to be an absolute joy bomb and might potentially be my favorite Jessica Simpson single. So I look at this as her first single the same way I look at Genie in a Bottle as Christina's first single. Yeah. This is Jessica's first song. When you think of Jessica premiering, when I think of seeing her on TV and my eyes turning into squares because I'm literally enamored by the beauty and the grace. Yes. It's this song. Yes. This is her first single to me. A hundred percent. I completely agree with you. And do you love it? I'm obsessed. Yeah. It's a great great song. Just like you said, it's a joy bomb. Oh, it's so good. I can listen to it forever. I agree. And it's very Mariah in her mid-tempo fantasy heartbreaker, dream lover vibe. It has that effervescent quality. I just absolutely adore this song. The sample is so ridiculous and fun and it's bombastic and unlike Genie in a Bottle and Baby One More Time, still very chaste and adult contemporary feeling. It's not an over-sexualized song. It's literally sampling a song that's very much about small town love. It's alluding directly to heartland values. There is a very specific vibe to Jessica's first album that really feels like it is a piece apart from what Christina and Britney are doing. I could not agree with you more. The heartland thing is so funny because it's so true. The video is also even very Mariah. You know, she's very mid-drift, but it's very all-American. It's very Girl Next Door. It looks like a Tommy Hilfiger ad. 100%. You know, it literally couldn't be more American. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, she's very much Heartland vibes, no question about it. Mm-hmm. All right, so this song hits number 21, but we've talked about this on our Tierra episode. There's kind of a group of songs whose chart positions don't reflect what a big deal they felt like to us as viewers of teen pop at this moment. It was a big hit in my house. Yes. And the rest of the this record, which I had never listened to before, honestly, pretty enjoyable album. Maybe Jessica's most listenable album. The only thing that I really feel like I want to say about it, and I'll give you an opportunity if there's anything else you want to say about this record, which there's not much to say about it, it's just a decent pop product from this period, is that there is a song called Woman In Me, which features Beyonce Knowles, Carter, you may have heard of her, <laughs> on background vocals. So just to give you an idea of where <laughs> pop culture's through the looking glass moment of 1999 was, there is a song on Jessica debut album in which our lord and savior Beyonce is relegated to background vocals. So I just wanted to make sure I said that. Before Frank Ocean got Beyonce to do backing vocals for free <laughs> with no name, it was Jessica who started it. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a ton to say about this album, to be honest. Yeah. It just wasn't one of my moments. I didn't listen to it a lot when I was younger at all. I know I owned it because it was during the time when you would just own the albums of the girls in the boy bands. Of course, because if you wanted to hear the single, you had to own the album. <laughs> exactly. It didn't rotate a lot for me. I just have no real memories attached to it, honestly. No, me neither. I had never heard it before in my goddamn life until this podcast preparation. Yeah. But it does sell a very respectable, if not massively impressive, for its time period. Four million copies worldwide, 1.9 million copies in the U.S. So it establishes Jessica, I think, as a contender, but it's certainly not the phenomenon of either Britney's debut album or Christina's debut album by a long shot. She's in the space. She's had a moment, but I just want to be clear 
familiar with people that didn't live through this, how this registered. She definitely felt second string to the other girls. Yeah. In 2001, she releases her second album, which is called Irresistible, and it's led off by the title track, a lead single that feels like a pretty notable pivot from that wholesome heartland image and directly towards, as I mentioned earlier, Britney. This song to me is very much a cooing, sexy, lascivious, pseudo-electro R&B. It has the Dark Child harpsichord riff that was very famous at that moment from He Wasn't Man Enough or Pink's There You Go or whatever. But it's an edgeless Britney knockoff song that still kind of bangs, right? I don't know if I can describe it any better than that. Edgeless is the best way to describe it. Yeah. It's attempting to be edgy. And for her, it is. I mean, she may as well be wearing titty tassels. It may as well be Doja Cat. May as well be Doja giving you full devil. (laughs) For Jessica, it is crazy. Yes. But it just is such a knockoff of a bunch of other things. And it gives the vibe of, God, she doesn't want to be singing that. A hundred percent. It feels very forced. Yeah. Her vocal performance is hollow, which is the thing that I return to a lot with this, which is she's got this technical proficiency. I guess, to mold herself to whatever she needs to do in a given moment. Mm -hmm. But it never rings with personality or feels embodied. It just feels like product. I happen to like this song just out of pure nostalgia and think it's a fine example of the sound of electro R&B pop music of this moment. But she is nothing special to me on this song at all. No, you're right. It's so far removed from what she, I think, wanted to do, what she likes to do. Right. It just feels like she's singing somebody else's song and she has no attachment to it whatsoever. No. It says more about the moment that it arrives into than anything about Jessica Simpson. Yeah. What this song says to me is Britney Spears' influence of this moment was all-consuming to the sound of popular music to the point where whoever went into the making of this record and I think it's very clear and I hate to take away agency from young women but I think it's safe to say that Jessica Simpson probably didn't have a ton of creative control over her music at this time and I think she probably would say that. I don't know if she has said it explicitly but it seems kind of obvious between Joe and Tom me and how different this music sounds from her earlier music that there was an attempt to pivot her into the down the middle sound of the moment regardless of whether that felt like it was appropriate for what Jessica Simpson had to offer as an artist and I think that that says a lot about the music industry at this time and it says a lot about how Jessica Simpson's cultural capital wasn't to the point where she was the type of person that was going to be able to control her musical destiny. Well it also is important to note that it's the first video that officially incorporates dancing. Mm. It's her first first time attempting because I think all the girls at that time have their own story of when they were told baby you're going to have to learn how to dance right and not just normal dance you're going to have to learn how to Britney dance yes and then being like I don't want to and I don't know how and then being like we don't care Right, 100%. So she definitely had to learn how to dance with the bowling pin formation Mm -hmm. dancers and that whole thing. And it's just so unnatural. Yes. She looks so uncomfortable. It's not good. It is not good. It's actually kind of sad. It is. This whole record is kind of sad. I mean, honestly, I again listened to this album and it is not a good album. It feels like someone getting the scraps. It's not good. Anyway, this song goes to number 15. Again, is a big TRL hit, I think, where we all remember. But Irresistible, the record 
record that it is part of performs half as well as Jessica's debut. It sells only 2 million copies worldwide. It sells 755,000 copies in the United States. These days, those numbers might seem good. In this particular era, this was the boom of the music industry. Britney was selling 16 and 20 million copies of her albums at this time. So just to give you some context of where that is, this is an underperforming album. No other singles from a chart. And I think it's important to say that because I think it felt like pretty much by 2001, 2002, Jessica was not a particularly successful pop star. No. From my perception of it, she felt like it also ran. It felt like it was kind of over. She felt like a bargain basement pop starlet. Agreed. Is that how you recall it in her just pre-newlywed moment? Yeah, like you said earlier, she was at C tier at this point. She was not even as successful or sought after as like a Mandy Moore. She really was just not considered one of the girls. No. And it does cloud your memory. You bringing up the numbers is wild to me because if I heard those numbers, numbers as of today would be crazy but you have to think that's 20 million people that are physically yeah going outside yes to support an artist it's 20 million people driving to the store yes to buy a 40 fucking dollar cd <laughs> the numbers are just wild when you think about them by today's standards 100 percent, but also wild to contextualize that jessica simpson was straight up in her flop era right so the thing that changes the game is that in a very prescient move by whoever was running jessica's career at this point i don't know if it was her i don't know if it was her dad They decide to parlay whatever interest there is around Jessica's private life, which I kind of want to ask you about. Had her relationship with Nick foregrounded as her music receded? Was there public interest in her and Nick's relationship to the point that basically what ends up happening is MTV gives them a reality show called Newlyweds, which essentially is chronicling their life from the moment that they get married in a way that was very novel at the time. We'd had the Osbournes, which was a seminal reality show on MTV about filming a famous family. But that was really the main template, I think, that was set forth for this, following a celebrity in their private life in a reality show. Can you talk a little bit about who Nick Lachey is exactly, where maybe he is in his career at this moment? And was there public interest enough that MTV would want to take this gamble on their career, despite the fact that Jessica felt kind of C-tier? Or was her C-tierness what allowed her to slum it on reality TV, which I think at the time did feel like potentially something that was not something that, even though Britney would eventually go on a couple of years later to do a reality show, at the time might have seemed beneath her. So as far as Nick goes, the interesting thing is that Nick also occupied the same space as Jessica, right. but in boy band tiers. Now that is interesting. Ninety-eight degrees was not the Backstreet Boys, and it was not in sync, right? Right. And it also wasn't even at the time like a B2K or something. <laughs> there were many other bands that came above ninety-eight degrees. One hundred percent. They were not a band that you bragged about being a fan of right. as a young person. <laughs> yeah. You maybe liked them in secret. You owned the albums, but you weren't bragging about being a fan of one of those guys. It just wasn't it. No, it was very much Backstreet and NSYNC dominated ninety-eight percent of that boy band conversation for sure. Totally. Honestly, even more so than Britney and Christina dominated. I feel like Jessica had more going on than 98 Degrees did. For sure, because they were boys. It's a whole different thing. But as far as the MTV of it all, so this is where this is very fascinating. So Joe Simpson negotiated the Newlyweds deal with MTV under the guise that, listen, 
Jessica is an MTV artist mm. and we want to use this show to launch the next phase of her career. Right. Which at the time was kind of unheard of. And it speaks to Joe Simpson being this evil genius yeah. <laughs> who was very ahead of his time. Yeah. He sort of fishtailing and lost control of the narrative. Right. But at a time, Joe was the pulse. Yes. His finger wasn't on the pulse. He was the pulse. He was the heartbeat. This was genius. This is one of the most genius moves and prescient moves any manager has ever made in modern pop history. For sure. Joe deserves all the praise for this and where it's the most interesting is that mtv was like yes of course you're totally right about that but what about nick mm. and joe had promised nick that during their negotiation he also negotiated for him so nick signed on to do this thinking that jessica's album wouldn't be the only one getting this big launching pad he thought his music was also going to get the same attention because he was also breaking out and going solo from the group at this moment right and his narrative was that he was sort of jobless yes <laughs> he was sort of without a career without a path without an identity not job. <laughs> and he was basically lied to and he found out during filming that this had really nothing to do with him and that he truly was just a side character. He was the Kramer to Jessica Seinfeld, really. Oh, interesting. And Joe kind of played him. He played him, yeah. Interesting. So... I went back and watched a few episodes of it. I know you're familiar with it. Let's just talk briefly about what's happening on this show. What <laughs> is Newlyweds and how does it present Jessica in particular, but them as a couple? Newlyweds truly is the first year of marriage for these two pop stars. Yeah, it literally opens with their wedding. And also a quote that truly stunned me, which is that the person marrying Nick and Jessica says point blank, and Jessica can wear this white dress proudly today because she has saved herself for this man or something along those lines. <laughs> Jessica can stand up here in this white wedding dress because a long time ago she committed her purity to God. Me on the plane yesterday was like cringe. God damn. It's just so mind-blowing to think that anybody thought this was a good idea. I mean, I guess in hindsight it was. It was. <laughs> when they turned the keys to enter their home, they were being filmed. Yes. They didn't experience a moment alone together during their first year. Mm -mm. It was also because because it was such a nascent moment for reality TV, like now there's this way that things get staged. It didn't feel that way. There's a lot of access in this show. It really does feel like they are just getting filmed all the time. Yeah, this was the days of not only having a film crew in your house, but cameras being set up in your home, Big Brother style. A hundred percent. Like you said, now you have characters and you have story arcs and the climax of the season and the villain and all that. At this time, this show was about Jessica going to Lowe's yes. and being confused at Lowe's. You know what I mean? <laughs> Honestly, just generally being confused, it felt like to me. The main thrust of this show is a truly jaw-dropping indictment of heterosexual marriage, honestly. I mean, it is so bleak. It's like you're looking at two children who like have no business getting married to each other, mm -hmm. barely seem to know who they are as people, are not mature at all in any sort of way. <laughs> Attempting to play house is what it seems like to me. And frankly, I don't want to indict Nick so badly because he seems like a young guy. It just wasn't the right time for them to get married. I don't know what it was, but their dynamic is troubling. I mean, the entire conceit of the show is she is this ditzy Barbie idiot, is a spoiled brat, has never had to clean up after herself or make her bed or doesn't know how to do anything domestic, and that he is nonstop making fun of her, saying degrading things to her, rolling his eyes at her, fighting with her. Is this chicken what I have or is this fish? I know it's tuna, but it, it says chicken by the sea. <laughs> it's 
stupid. <laughs> What? Don't make fun of me right now. I'm not in the mood. You act like you've never had tuna before. I've had tuna fish like sandwiches and stuff like this. Maybe you and I have eaten tuna like this before. Why is it called chicken by the sea or in the sea? Chicken of the sea is the brand. Oh. You know, because a lot of people eat tuna. It's like a lot of people eat chicken. It's like the chicken of the sea. Okay. The whole thing is just very ick. I was very into watching it, and I remember it was a fucking phenomenon when it came out, codified by the chicken of the sea moment where Jessica confuses tuna fish and chicken. But looking back on it, I found it nearly unwatchable because I just find their dynamics sickening. What's your interpretation of that? Well, I do want to add, while we're on the topic of newlyweds, this is the peak of simple life culture, right? Totally. Blonde white women are the dumbest, most non-factor idiots. They're meant to be pretty. And even if they are smart, if they're on a reality show, they're going to be edited to look Jessica tries to do the laundry. Do, 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 do. It's very that, yeah. And we were eating that shit up at the time. Of course. We were just eating that shit up, dumb blondes, and yes. it being really cool to not be smart, and it's flirtatious to not be smart. Mm, very that. Men think it's sexy when you're hot and dumb. That's exactly what this feels like. <laughs> but it also feels like they sort of hate each other. I mean, you get this true sense of animosity towards each other. Yeah. They're extraordinarily compatible they want different things out of life they have totally different values and they annoy the fucking shit out of each other in the swath of episodes that i watched i was just like why are you married to I each know. other it's very shocking i still love you i still love you what the hell is that supposed to no, I, mean, I still love you in spite of what i still love you in spite of you're what decorating well then you get off your ass and do it i've been here working my ass off for like the last three days baby i'm not do is come home and bitch about it i'm not bitching you're bitching in your own non-bitchy kind of way. But in reality, you're bitching. You just won't directly come out and say you don't like it. You'll beat around the bush with it. There's so many dynamics at play. You have Jessica who doesn't know quite yet that she's about to become extremely famous so that by season two, she's one of the most famous people in the country. On the back of the show, really more than anything. On the back of the show. But she does kind of have this built-in security with her family. And even in their marriage, her dad is their third. He is making decisions about their relationship, about everything. Nothing happens without Joe being involved somehow. And yeah. I think that Nick is a fucking vile beast in Tim's. I just can't even get over him. But watching it as an adult, trying to find some sort of devil's advocate thing just to have an interesting back and forth, I was thinking it must have been really weird for Nick. Because listen, I believe that Jessica is extremely entertaining and she's a really smart person. And she came into it knowing that she was going to do this whole thing. She kind of knew the character she was playing. Exactly. And it must have been really weird for Nick to engage that. Because there are many moments where he's like, Jessica, you know this. We talked about it yesterday. I know that you know that that's not buffalo. You know what mm. wings are. You try these? I don't eat buffalo. <laughs> buffalo, idiot. <laughs> oh my god. Huh? No, it's chicken. But it's why they call buffalo wings. Baby, come on. You know it. I don't know this. Because barbecue wings started in buffalo or something like that. You know what's kind of weird that buffaloes don't have wings? 
<laughs> it must have been really difficult for him to play the game with his wife, especially knowing that the whole thing is really just a ruse to make her more famous and to leave him completely in the dust. Right. It's so interesting because she does become a cultural phenomenon in a way that her music never had made her before on the back of whatever that persona is. And he is tangential to this very quickly. Her gaffes are instantaneously whatever the 2003 version of memeable is. Yeah. Having that chicken of the sea moment in the first episode sets the template for everything that ends up rocketing her to fame, which is, as you mentioned, on the back of this ditzy, beautiful pop stars. The things that were most interesting to me about the show are what the day-to-day -day life of like a working class duo of pop stars is kind of up to because yes. they're not Britney level. They're not A-list. So like they are doing USO shows and they are mm -hmm. having to penny pinch in certain moments and they don't have infinite money. And interesting, they'll sort of see Jessica as this character that has been pursuing fame since she was 13 years old and really has never done laundry and mm -hmm. has had everything done for her. And so there are kind of interesting elements of it that do give you a window into how pop stars in this particular era worked or what it looked like from behind the scenes in a way that I don't think we had really ever seen before totally, especially in that particular echelon. And I think maybe the most interesting thing is that it really does work because Jessica releases her third studio album simultaneously to this coming out. Now, before the show is a sensation, she releases this single, which is a really icky song called The Sweetest Sin that Diane Warren wrote, which is essentially equating having sex with your husband to sin, but like a good kind of yeah. sin. talk about a song that truly just has vile values to it, but whatever. Okay, so she releases the song, The Sweetest Sin, which is Miss Diane Warren Ballad, which does not chart at all. Does not chart in any country when it first comes out before Newlyweds blows up. Then Newlyweds blows up, and the second single is this song, With You. It's almost like a light pop rock mid-tempo, borderline country gesturing. It reminds me a little bit of Jesse McCartney's Beautiful Soul. It's got a little bit of a rhythmic feeling to it. Becomes a success and becomes perhaps Jessica's signature song and most memorable song to many people because it really plays on the persona of the newlyweds character. It opens with this lyric about the real me as a southern girl with my Levi's on and an open heart. The real me is a southern girl with a Levi's on and an open heart. Wish I could save the world like I was There's kind of like a cutesy girl next door. You all know about my life and you know that I'm the regular girl behind the pretty face and mm -hmm. that's my vibe. And with you really saves her music career. Do you like the song? Why do you think it's such a success? Do you feel it's Jessica's signature song more or less at this point? It absolutely is her signature song, in my opinion. I always gauge somebody's signature song based on how they're written about. And she's the with you singer. Yes. In the way that Britney is the toxic singer, no matter what. Yes. It's her signature. And I think when you look at Joe's greatest moments as a manager, the release of with you, the filming of that music video. Right. She just reenacts parts of the reality show. Yeah. Like she's literally <laughs> eating tuna in the video. And <laughs> eating wings because she thought that they were made of buffalo. She kind of accepted and tried to capitalize on the fact that people saw her as a goofy cartoon character ditz, basically. Yeah, and I feel like that song sounds the most like 
a song she wanted to sing. Right, 100%. I think if you look at all of her singles, that's the one song where I'm like, damn, she likes that song and she likes singing it and it really does embody the whole era to me. 100%. A good song. Yes, great song. Oh. Yeah, and then this record in the skin, this third album, then produces a second top 20 hit in a very filial cover of Take My Breath Away that I don't think there's that much to say about. It's just kind of a cover of Take My Breath Away. I feel like there's not much else you need to know about this song. Take my breath away. She also releases a cover of Robbie Williams' Angels, which are only important as a duo because there's a certain era of Jessica's career where she just kind of starts becoming a covers artist, consistently just covering iconic other songs, doing nothing interesting with them, just kind of doing a cover version of them. No interpretation, no new spin on it, just basically doing a good cover of the song. And In The Skin becomes her most successful album ever. It sells 7 million copies worldwide. It sells 2 million copies in the US. And I guess this whole era makes Jessica probably the most famous that she ever is. This exact moment following the first couple seasons of Newlyweds, following the success of With You, Jessica is at her most famous. Now, this is an important foray for us to switch gears and talk about our other subject for today, Jessica's younger sister, Ashley. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. So I feel like Joe sees the success of Newlyweds and says, I've got another idea and it's for my other daughter. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening with Ashley throughout Jessica's rise and success and how it culminates in the Ashley Simpson show and eventually her debut album, Autobiography? What are the early parts of that that we need to situate ourselves in or what do we need to check in with about Ashley as Jessica's phenomenon is going on? So what we don't know as Newlyweds is being filmed is that this other show is also being filmed, the Ashley Simpson show. Ashley was sort of, I don't even know what category you would put her in because she definitely wasn't one of the girls. No, she was not famous, famous. Famous, but she was around, kind of? Yeah, like, she almost, I hate to constantly make the comparison, but, like, Solange. Right. Pre-Solange's cool era. In Solange's little Romeo duet era. Yes. Wearing crocheted tops and stuff. Yes. Solange would still show up at the MTV Beach House and it wouldn't be weird. And I feel like that's how Ashley was. Right. MTV was such a huge, all-consuming force to pop culture at this moment that it was almost like there was an MTV universe that included the pop stars at the center of it. And then people that were in their world became part of the extended universe of MTV. And I'm saying that even before Ashley had her own show. She was kind of a figure that we knew about. Like we knew about Jamie Lynn. We knew about all of the family members. They were all part of the broader MTV characters 
stable or something like that. She was also on Seventh Heaven, which was this Christian-coded teen soap opera. And then she hosted TRL, which I totally had blanked on. I didn't remember that at all. <laughs> no, that's exactly what I was going to say. She very much occupied the space of, I'm the actor sister. I'm the sister who is going to be successful in acting. Right. I'm going to carve my own path in entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it's called Seventh Heaven. <laughs> It's called having a brief one and a half season arc on Seventh Heaven. <laughs> and like a mall scene in The Hot Chick. <laughs> <laughs> on the WB Monday, check out Seventh Heaven's Ashley Simpson. Your family is like family to me. She's Jessica Simpson's little sister. Surprise! Teen People says, watch out. This young star will be big in 2004. We talked about this a little at the beginning. Jessica's kind of the pinup Barbie dits. What is Ashley's vibe, even as we sort of get into the Ashley Simpson show? I think Jay-Z described her perfectly on TRL, actually. She's the spunky, wild, unpredictable younger sister that you don't know what she's going to say or do. She's very much the Kendall. Mm, interesting. Or who Kendall thinks that she is. She's the weird sister. She's the sister who is the Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club. Yes. She's doing something weird at the dinner table while Jessica is standing on a soapbox singing for the family. You know what I mean? She looks like she doesn't take a shower for a couple of days and wears ripped up jeans and they drag on the floor and that kind of thing. Yes. And it was during a time when there were not as many outlets or ways to sort of be inspired by artists because we didn't have social media. Not every girl sees themselves as a Jesus Barbie, but a lot of girls see themselves as the black sheep. Right. The girl who wears a hoodie and jeans and is normal. Ashley really resonated with girls in a more relatable way, I think. Whereas Jessica was more aspirational, funny, beautiful. I want to be her. Right. Ashley was like, oh, no, I want to be friends with her and I want to be her. Right. She was down to earth. She was the type of girl that would trip and fall or she'd burp or whatever. She had that kind of vibe going on, I felt like. Yeah. So... Let's talk about the Ashley Simpson show. So basically, Joe forms this show around Ashley that is essentially chronicling Jessica's younger sister, who's kind of this more rock-oriented, black sheep figure of the family, finding her own way into making her debut album, essentially. How does that transpire across the Ashley Simpson show, first season in particular? So all the stuff that we just talked about with Jessica, I think, perfectly leads up to this because... Ashley's whole thing and the whole point of her show was for us to see that she didn't want to be one of the pop girls. Right. She had no interest and she watched what happened to her sister and literally says on camera many times, yes. I'm not doing what Jessica did yes. and I'm not going to have them basically take my album and turn it into kids bop because they want me to be Britney. Ashley Simpson and I'm 19 years old. Some of you guys might know me as Jessica Simpson's little sister. I just moved out of my parents' place and got my very own place. I worked up a sweat from that. I have a great boyfriend. <laughs> I just signed a record deal with Geffen Records. This is not the end, not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. It's a bit scary because I have so much work to do. There is so many other things when it comes to doing your album. There's writing, there's recording, there's marketing, there's styling, there's all these photo shoots. It's such an exciting time in my life. I can't wait to see what happens next. Her yeah. predecessor would have been Hilary Duff. Right, I was going to say, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, in some ways, the Simpson sisters story helps us illuminate larger trends and ideas that are happening in pop at this time, which is that while you have the dominant overlay of the sort of Britney and Britney runoff mainstream pop figures, right. you also have this backlash movement that begins to form in the early 2000s that sort of begins with Avril. I think Avril is a seminal and important figure if you're going to be talking about Ashley Simpson's musical mm -hmm. career. He was a skater boy, she said, see you later. 
but you have Avril, you have Pink, Fifi Dobson, you have a series of characters that are rising who are secretly just as pop oriented as the other girls are, but are sort of framing their narrative around the idea that we are edgy, we don't want to be lascivious sex robot creatures, and we want to employ the guises of rock and roll music and guitars to convey the fact that we are real music in the face of this bubblegum dance pop that's been dominating the sound of the Britney and Britney-esque pop cohort. Avril literally will get on TV and diss Britney to her face. Pink literally has a line in Don't Let Me Get Me that's I'm tired of being compared to damn Britney Spears. There's this movement of female pop stars that are employing rock and roll techniques, but that are still making very sugary pop songs, but are sort of framed as alternatives to the dance pop, Britney, bubblegum pop cohort of stars. I feel like that's important to say. Oh, it's beyond important. You know this. I lovingly refer to them as the fingerless gloves girls. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes sense for everybody. They're the girls who showed up on TRL with fingerless gloves. Yes. And you're like, oh, they didn't come here to play. I'm a little scared. Right. One of them may have a little knife or something. <laughs> and also, like you said, Avril, I think, was very much in the ABC tier group. Right. She created a whole subgenre of music that was acceptable in that market, that sort of TRL market where it was like pop punk. Avril basically introduced the idea that it was okay to have that be on TRL, you know? Right, exactly. I think there was a little bit of a difficult thing where it was like, we didn't live in the poptimism era that we live in now where liking pop music was an acceptable, cool thing to do. Right. Liking Britney and Christina, even for us as teens in that time, I still feel like you had to defend yourself a little bit. Even though they were the biggest stars in the world, there was still this feeling of that's not real music, whatever. There were still all of these raucous ideas of credibility, et cetera, et cetera, that we still have, but way less so now. I think there was this feeling of Avril and then maybe to a certain degree Pink and eventually all of the artists that emerged in the wake of that movement gave you a way to be like, no, I like real music. I like music that has guitars in it. And also very importantly, Avril and Pink were very much like, I write my own songs because that was a big thing that the Britney and Britney cohort were dinged for all the time, which was that they weren't songwriters and they weren't sitting down and sharing their real life feelings in their songs. Whether or not there was quite a huge team of virtuoso songwriters and producers working on those Avril and Pink songs, let me tell you. (laughs) And Max Martin was kind of on both teams. But there was this framework around them that they were a return to real, credible musicianship, even though heavy air quotes. (laughs) Extremely heavy air quotes. Right. So Ashley is positioning herself in that mold, I think. Yeah, she's very much in that mold. Hilary Duff was the person that she got compared to. So she's fighting against this Britney thing, but also she's like no you don't understand i'm not a disney girl and i'm actually very much a girl who grew up listening to like blondie and madonna and whole and yeah exactly like i want to be courtney love you guys are so far off oh make me over i'm all i want to be she's like not only do i not want to be hillary duff I want to be on the completely other end of the spectrum. I got this phone call from Steve. It was basically to talk about Jordan, the president of my record company. Didn't like the demos. I know, like all my friends loved it and everything, you know? He's like, guys, I want you to refocus your direction. It's got to be edgy like Hillary Duff and Kelly Parkman. Hillary Duff? Are you kidding me? I don't want people to want me to be like Hillary Duff. I think she's a doll and has, you know, her thing going for it. But... I don't want to be like that. And they did this to my sister. They made her try to be like Britney Spears and that f***ed her 
that because that's not who she is. The show is basically being used as a giant promotional vessel for Ashley's debut album, Autobiography. And it chronicles everything from her early days writing with a fucking member of Sugar Ray or something like that. Yeah. It chronicles her eventually landing with John Shanks and Cara Guardi and writing the bulk of Autobiography. It very much frames her both as sort of what you were saying earlier, which is like somebody that is sort of like, yeah, I'm going to have a pop career. And it's very much Nepo baby vibes. It has this real air of someone that's just like, I want to make a pop album and my daddy helped me get a record deal and I'm getting to figure out who I am as an artist with like a $1 million budget. Right. Which never happens. It's just a very strange sort of thing. At the same time, she is very charming. As I said, there's a kind of guileless quality to her. She's got a down-to-earth vibe to her in a weird way. You kind of want to see her figure it out and succeed. And then at the same time, they're very much pushing this narrative of her as this singer-songwriter. She is with that notebook and there's constant scenes of her in the Hollywood Hills trying to write lyrics and they're telling you a lot about her real life and her relationships and then how she's channeling that into certain songs that she's writing. So there's definitely this feeling on the show of watching this girl and they're trying to convey to you that she is not the sort of pop product that we see Jessica as and that she is a singer-songwriter. And that's believable and also totally feels fake and put on at the same time. And it was just interesting to see how hard they're pushing that narrative through the show. Yeah, I think that it lends itself to why, in my opinion, Ashley's rise felt so much more meteoric than Jessica, where Jessica had this slow burn for a long time. Ashley was overnight the most famous person in the globe. It was so much different than even with newlyweds for Jessica. Yeah. And again, Joe is just so smart for allowing us to see her with Ryan Cabrera. Right. But then watching her write these songs about him. And then we listen to the songs. We feel like we know the whole thing. Totally. We're like part of it. Yeah. It's like a pre-Taylor Swift thing. Totally. It's very pre-Taylor in that way. And it's also very pre-Kardashians in the way that you can sort of see real things. And then they're like the real things in life are reflected in the show and then the show is showing you how the song is made and there's numerous cycles in which you can talk about the same public narrative in various different ways. It's really smart and really presages so much about the way the smartest versions of celebrity culture work today. It's genius. Yeah. So I want to spend time on Autobiography, which is Ashley's debut album. And to me, honestly, banger record. This album is great. Kind of no skips. It has a real point of view, aesthetic tone to it. The entire thing is produced by John Shanks, who was famous at the time for working with a lot of the artists we've talked about from Pink to Alanis, etc. It's largely co-written with, or I don't know, whatever, Cara Diaguardi, who is a very prolific singer, songwriter herself, and also songwriter for numerous big pop figures at the time. Talk to me about this music, what it sounds like, and what Ashley's on-record persona is in these songs, in your mind. So I definitely think that for this album specifically, I think she really wanted to lean into this pop-punk version of Hole. Yes. She really (laughs) wanted to be this pop-punk Courtney Love. Mm -hmm. And the way that it translates and works so perfectly is wild, because it's spot on. I believe that this is probably one of the best pop-punk albums in history. Maybe short of Breakaway, this is the best pop punk come pop album of this period. It is absolutely no skips. Yes. Every single song feels like it could be a single in a minute. Whenever I listen to it, I always think, what was the process of choosing the singles? Because these are all singles. Right. Big slamming, super catchy poppy hooks. Sure. 
It's also kind of reflective of everything that she is in the show. You would think it could be beyond her grasp to make an album with those aspirations to it, but her personality is very much what it is on the show, which is she's kind of a teen, she's kind of guileless. The opening song, Autobiography, is so perfect. The lyrics are borderline dumb. Like She's not really aiming for epic poeticness either. She kind of meets the music where it is. The hook of the title track is Got Stains on My T-Shirt, I'm the Biggest Flirt. Right now I'm solo, but that'll be changing eventually. Her persona, I think, is very much like I misunderstood and I'm celebrating that and also lashing back at people that are misunderstanding me, but in a very accessible, prefab, non-threatening way. Yes. It feels very much like a teen girl who's like, I'm rebelling and I am misunderstood. And I just tied my hair. And I, <laughs> I just dyed it. <laughs> And that's what makes it winning to me. It's not trying to be anything more sophisticated than that, even though it's also very well played. The production is amazing and all the songs are great. Yeah. The first single is, of course, this song, Pieces of Me, which is, to me, kind of like a post-Avril, almost in the mold of complicated, mid-tempo rocker. about it is that I actually feel like in a way that Jessica feels robotic and disconnected from her music, there is a way that Ashley feels quite emotionally resonant to me. She's quite connected. I feel the emotional thrust of the song, which is about finding somebody that appreciates you and loves you for all the different parts of you. And there's something about her sort of lack of singing ability that makes it winning. There's something homemade about watching this girl that really can't sing that well and has this very distinctive sounding where Jessica's voice is a dime a dozen to me in terms of American Idol singers. Ashley's voice is textured raspy, instantly recognizable, has a lot of character to it, has a lot of emotion in it. It makes these songs really work. I think that's part of the reason that, aside from pieces of me just being a slammer with an incredible hook, there's something about Ashley that's actually very moving that can actually provide emotional thrust in a way that none of Jessica's songs do. I don't think that it can be described better than what you just said, to be honest with you. There is something about it that resonates. There's something about her singing these songs and feeling the connection to her. Even now, Yeah. when I hear those songs, I'm immediately transported to that time mm -hmm. in her life. Yes, there's something very tender about that way she sort of sings those verses. I am moody and messy. Yes. You really feel this desire to sort of state who she is. That was another thing that really came across to me is there's a lot of I am declarations on this music. I'm a big flirt. I'm moody and messy. On Better Off, I'm misunderstood. I'm always late. My hair is always a mess. There's this constant self-description. There's this real sense of a girl fighting to be sort of seen as another famous song on this record goes in the shadow of this completely other type of figure in her life and her sister. That's such a relatable quality that sort of teen fight to be seen. She conveys that very effectively. And we were so hyper aware of that fight to be seen. And I think it resonated with so many people who were around the same age as her or way younger who were fighting to be seen in whatever space that they existed. And it just resonated. It just hit. Yes. And, you know, I mentioned earlier with you, it just felt so perfectly timed with that period. Pieces of me just feel so 
it is the perfect first single. Mm-hmm. Not only is it just so memorable and it gets stuck in your head and it's fun to sing and it's fun to bell and all those things, but it also is a perfect time capsule for that moment. And it just feels so lightning in a bottle, that whole thing happening at the same time. Yes, 100%. And I think even the fact that she can barely hit that first note on the chorus just makes it all the more lovable and relatable. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so interesting. You brought up Taylor Swift earlier. So the second single is the song Shadow, which is kind of like a grunge pop ballad, I would describe it as. And yes, Taylor Swift so masterfully has wrapped public narratives about herself into her music. And Shadow also is a precursor to that effective version of doing that. It's almost like she had to do a song on here that was going to address directly, I'm not my sister. This is what my experience is. And it's so melodramatic. It makes having a famous sister sound like being waterboarded or something like that. Like it's totally. <laughs> Out of pocket. Living in a nightmare, trying to find a hand to hold, my chains are finally free. Yeah, I mean, all the days collided, one less perfect than the next. I was stuck inside someone else's life. I mean, it's very melodramatically intense, but kind of winningly so. It conveys that very teenage version of every emotion feels amplified times 20. It's a very effective sort of framing of, you're actually just thinking about having a famous sister. It doesn't sound like it's that bad. It's given you the runway to have this career (laughs) begin with, I think. Right. You kind of were able to release a massively giant, (laughs) super expensive first album because of it. But no, I agree with you. It's perfectly melodramatic in that way that like it is for like a young girl. I bet she listens to that song back and she laughs to herself because it is very teenage girl. But also at the same time, it was such a smart chapter to incorporate into this whole thing because we were all very hyper aware of the comparison and Mm -hmm. the show sort of revolved around this idea that Jessica, even on camera, didn't really see her sister. No, there's very funny moments in the show. Literally didn't see her. She has her debut fucking performance and Jessica shows up having had LASIK eye surgery and shows up in those goggles that you get after having (laughs) LASIK eye surgery and literally can't see her. (laughs) And is so perplexed by her through the whole show. Why don't you want to be tan? Jessica asks her numerous times. At one point, Ashley says, I want to dress more boy. And Jessica goes, but you're not a boy. But you're not a boy. Why do you want to do that, Ashley? It's crazy. Even the running gag when they would make fun of the Ashley Simpson show on Mad TV, the running gag was Jessica can do no wrong. She is the apple of her dad's eye. Yeah. She is literally his little Christian angel. And then there's Ashley, the runt, yeah. the fuck up, the one who's always being yelled at by her dad and being told by everybody that she's this ugly mess and that she should be sexier. And they had to address it. And I loved the way that they chose to just lean all the fuck the way in. There was no idea that this could be about something other than just Jessica and her family. (laughs) Totally, 100%, 100%. And it says so much about Jessica about how out of the box this ultimately mega pop music sounded to Jessica. Jessica is such a basic music maker. Yes. Has such a minute idea of what music is supposed to be that these incredibly well-written and incredibly catchy pop songs to Jessica seemed completely mind-blowing. She cannot wrap her head around it. It's so fascinating, honestly. When she's listening, to that album she's that meme with all of the math behind her she's like what is this yeah, 
And you can tell it's this weird family moment where Ashley is completely emotionally hinged on this idea that Jessica needs to like it, but also can't even look at her while she listens. So she's like pretending to fold shirts. And also the thought of turning to Jessica Simpson for musical advice in retrospect is just truly, you're in danger, girl. Like, don't do that. And then the last thing I'll say about it is obviously Lala, another single from this record, is absolutely legendary, total slammer, and also allows Ashley to be something that her sister never was, which was to kind of be explicitly sexual. I mean, the lyric, you can throw me like a line man, I like it better when it hurts, or I'm like an alley cat, drink the milk up, I want more. I mean, there's some stuff in here that feels edgy in the context of this generation of TRL teen pop. You make me wanna lie. Man, that song goes hard as hell. Yeah. That boiling tea kettle that revs up right before the final chorus. I don't know if you've ever heard that sound effect. It's incredible. <laughs> they insert yes. the sound of a boiling tea kettle that bursts into the final chorus, and it is euphoria. You make me wanna Lala is chef's kiss 13 out of 10 love that song so much is that your favorite song on that album honestly i would have said so prior to this listening through but there is a lot of good songs i love better off so good incredible me too i love surrender i love love me for me i love a lot of songs on this album love me for me the fact that that wasn't a single missed opportunity yes that could have been the biggest song of her career honestly i fucking love that song Here I am, perfect as I'm ever gonna be. Damn, that is a bar. <laughs> Me and my friend Jesse, who I know that you're friends with as well, he's been on this show before. Yeah. Jesse and I love Ashley's, we love the effects of her voice, but specifically the squeaks. Yes, the squeaks. Like that breakdown. <laughs> ah! There's so many weird vocal intonations that I'm like, what? I need to watch the recording session for this. When did she do that? And why did she do that? I also think her croaky rasp works really well on Love Me For Me. It's one of those moments where her sort of inability to sing again kind of works and plays well into the song. In that same way that, you know when Sia cracks her voice? Yes, 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 yes. And it's the best notes when it's completely off. Yes, 100%. That's how I feel about her. The difference being that Sia actually can sing. Exactly, and it's like a choice. But pointing. <laughs> so autobiography hit record pieces of me is a top 10 hit it goes number five in the u.s shadow and lala are again trl hits this is a troy and i trope in every episode we hit these are songs that if you want to hear the chart positions shadow hit number 57 on the hot 100 and lala hit number 86 but to <laughs> us on trl they were massive hits this is our billboard autobiography hits number one on the album chart which is something that jessica had never done quite interestingly i thought it goes three times platinum in the united states something jessica also had not done and then everything in ashley's career comes crashing the fuck down as fast as it started when she books snl and troy want to run us through what happens here well miss acid reflux decided <laughs> to rear her ugly head as she does and she's performing on snl this is supposed to be this big moment 
Yeah. And it's really sad because you're looking at this young, wide-eyed about the industry girl. Yes, 100%. Who has very little performing experience. Like, this is where the Nepo baby thing bit her in the fucking ass. Because the truth of the matter is, she wasn't really ready for her moment. Yeah. She wasn't ready for prime time. Literally. That's exactly what it is. She wasn't actually ready. Her dad just kind of pushed her into it because it felt like the right time for the family to do that. But it wasn't really for her. And I also always felt like her success was so meteoric. And I feel like she, because she was a Nepo baby, she didn't really have any idea that this isn't how it works for people. Right. She just thought that this was the normal way that you become an artist. And it's not. A hundred percent. She has this vibe in the show of like, she deserves this. It's preordained. There is a sense of that. You don't get ever a sense of... Where did her burning desire to be a musician arise from? You never feel that from her. It just kind of feels like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Like, of course I'm doing this. This is the family business and it's my turn to make an album. Thanks, Daddy. So what happens exactly on SNL for those who don't know? So Ashley is set to perform allegedly her drummer was in charge of pushing the button for the right song because she did document on the show this whole acid reflux journey where this doctor was like your vocal cords are literally fucked right you don't take care of yourself you drink orange juice before you perform yeah you're kind of a mess yeah and your voice is literally burnt to a crisp yes not only should you not be singing you shouldn't even be talking and what does she do the night before snl she goes out and then the day of she drinks orange juice and a True professional, yeah. It's a mess. It's such a young girl, you know? So they end up playing the wrong song. She's left to stand there on stage without any idea of what to do. Not only do they play the wrong song, but she's also, because of the acid reflux, she claims, lip syncing. So a vocal track begins playing to the wrong song. There's no escaping that lip syncing had been happening, and there's just really nothing she can do about it at that point. Once again, Ashley Simpson. On a Monday, I am waiting. Tuesday, I'm fading. If you've watched the show, her going into a little gallop is the most Ashley thing literally ever but the way that people were so put off by that because they were like it shows she doesn't care she's like 10 years old it's also iconic and as i mentioned earlier it's lived on that little gallop that little jiggity jig jig <laughs> is maybe to most the most iconic moment of ashley simpson's career more so than any of the songs right that goes down in history no one will ever forget that that's going to be in her obituary and there was also already this idea that like you had said earlier liking this kind of music was not cool in the way that men will just sit and interpret Taylor Swift lyrics now, yeah. that would not have happened publicly at this time. No, ever, no, no. ever, 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 ever. Just no, to give context no, to the younger listeners. No, no, Your boyfriend would not like Taylor Swift with you, just so you know. That's a good point. So the country was already really excited to have some reason to tear this girl down. Right. And she's a Nepo baby and she doesn't have traditionally good singing voice. You know, there's all kinds of ways that she's an easy target. Exactly. So the punishment definitely, in my opinion, did not match the crime. No. The fact that it was live, I think, didn't help. But this idea that nobody sings in front of a fucking backing track, 
I mean, are you kidding? We also knew less about the inner workings of pop stardom. I feel like these days, the average pop listener is more cued into the fact that most singers do sing with the help of a recorded backing track. We know more now. Also, there was massive, constant debates around credibility. I mean, the idea of selling out, something oh, we God. don't talk about that much anymore, but that was a big question of artists selling out. I mean, this was also at the same time, speaking of this pop rock moment where Liz Fair went from making kind of singer-songwriter music to making more music in the style of the pop punk of Hilary Duff and Ashley Simpson and Avril Lavigne and got slammed for yeah. it. There were so many conversations around selling out. Even when Nelly Furtado a couple of years later went and made her album with Timberland or Gwen going to make her pop records, there was all this angst and anxiety about icky it was making pop music. So I think that that was another part of it. It was like anything to sort of discredit the integrity of a pop artist or anything to kind of add to this general story of pop musicians and pop artists not being real because they don't do XYZ rockist sort of trope whatever that is, sing, write their own songs. We didn't have a lot of sophisticated discourse around that at that time either. And I think Ashley fell victim to that. Yeah, not at all. Like you said, we just didn't know a lot about the industry. And it's crazy to look back for people who didn't live through that or are too young maybe to know what happened. In the way that we cancel people now for something really horrific, like you cancel somebody for an assault yeah. or something really bad. Yeah. That was the way that we canceled this young girl for having a backing track play a couple seconds early. People piling her albums out in streets and running over them with fucking construction machines, burning her shirts and stuff on the news. It was really a witch hunt for a child. It was a national news story. It was everywhere. And they chronicled the backlash to it on the show, which was very interesting and also so kind of ahead of its time. So we called a doctor onto the set for Saturday Night Live. I was talking to him and he told me that I was gonna ruin my vocal cords if I tried to sing on them as swollen as they were. Everybody's conclusion was that I sang to a backing track. On a Monday, and the vocal track comes up for pieces of me. But we had already played pieces of me. I didn't know what to do. Like inside, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is live. I was humiliated and so embarrassed, and I couldn't believe that this was actually happening. There was definitely people freaking out, Saturday Night Live people, just, you know, people in the room, just everybody didn't really know what to do, and you know that everybody's freaked out. I woke up the next day not knowing that Saturday Night Live was going to be as big of a deal as it was. But I think there's a way in which that moment is the end of really the main thrust of Jessica and Ashley's pop stardom, both of them weirdly, because of course they both go on to release new music. In 2005, Jessica famously stars in the Dukes of Hazard. She also famously divorces Nick in a very public way, obviously because of the success of the show, which essentially ends the show. Mm -hmm. So that's the next year. And Ashley releases another album in 2005 called Hilariously I Am Me. That's my favorite Ashley album, by the way. It's fantastic. It's maybe just as good as Autobiography, if not quite. I mean, you like it better. A lot of great songs. I mean, I love the lead single, Boyfriend. Incredible. Pop punk, bratty response to Lindsay Lohan, I'm pretty sure, related to <laughs> yeah. a little Raval drama. <laughs> yeah. It also has the incredibly iconic Gwen Stefani ripping L-O-V-E, which is like Ashley's rich girl meets hollaback girl song. <laughs>
but honestly, incredible title track, banger. Yes. Really good, but similar overall vibe, maybe with slightly more pop overtones. It's good. Honestly, good album. Great. I got to tell you, One Sister made better music consistently, and it is not <laughs> Jessica, baby. I'm just going to say that. But the record is not a particularly huge success. It no. does debut at number one. It sells about a third of the copies of Autobiography. Boyfriend goes to number 19, and LOVE goes to number 22, but it doesn't have any top 10 hits. And then, of course, Jessica also releases another record in 2006 called A Public Affair, which features the boppity bop bop bibbity bop title track. Oh, yeah. Which is, of course, a total and utter rip of Madonna's holiday, but I'm not complaining. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> And it's all a little cutesy riff on what it's like to be a reality star again. It's another song that, in the same way of With You, alludes directly to the fact that Jessica has this persona and lives her life in public and whatever. So... Good song. And then, of course, the rest of this record, which I listened to again probably for the first time ever the other day, is insane. I mean, she does a cover of You Spin Me Right Round, like a record for no fucking reason at all. She does a swing song. She does a song I Sent You Yesterday, Troy, which is clearly made by Scott Storch for Danity Kane for their debut album. And then Jessica just recorded it, and it's insane. Like, one of the worst songs I've ever heard. A Public Affair, also not a very big success. This record debuts at number five. It only sells 300,000 copies in the United States. The single A Public Affair peaks at number 14, but none of the other singles chart. So at that point, as fast as they've emerged, we're in 2006 and it feels basically like their careers as pop stars simultaneously end. Ashley, because she has this public rupture, but Jessica, because people just lose interest in her once newlyweds isn't a thing anymore, question mark. What do you think happens? Why does Jessica immediately become dismissed, you know, from year to year, it seems like? Well, I feel like by that point, she really had been beaten up in a way that Ashley I don't know if it was the same she'd been beaten up but in a such a different way than her sister right and she had such a rocky relationship with the music industry already right she never really had been a sustained musical force as much as she was a reality star right and I think that at that point she had started establishing herself to like do other things that's when she started leaning into the idea that she could become this fashion mogul maybe yeah and then with Ashley Ashley went on to release Bittersweet World which it's only fans that like that album nobody really even knows the songs from it i fucking live for it though it's also amazing i'm sorry ashley simpson made three really good albums and this album's different i mean this album's produced by timberland and chad hugo from the net all of a sudden she got quite a cadre of hip-hop producers crossing over to make scuzzy indie pop rock dance 80s yes. music santa gold wrote the single out of my head The great revelation of this entire deep dive for me is Ashley Simpson made three good albums. They're all good. I really enjoyed listening to all three of these records. But of course, Bittersweet World was a flippity flop, flop down the wazoo. Oh, absolutely. And they're all so unique. They identify as Ashley albums for sure, but Bittersweet World feels like a whole night and day different thing. Oh, for sure. When I think of that Timbaland, the Madonna, the Nelly Furtado, the Justin era, I also think of Bittersweet World. Yeah. Because she was very much in that 
moment with him and also the influence of Pete. Right, because she was dating Pete Wentz and had a baby with Pete Wentz. Yeah, I think that having him in her life made a really big impact on her musically. But she also, I think, just kind of leaned into being more of a celebrity at that point than a musician. Right. And that's been her story ever since. I mean, she's never released another album again. She's eventually married Evan Ross. She is Diana Ross's fucking daughter-in-law. She's living. Let me go to that Thanksgiving. I want to go to that Thanksgiving so badly. I want to watch Diana Ross and Ashley Simpson interact so badly. Oh my God. I am dying to see that. I know that Jessica went on to release a whole fashion thing. Yeah. And I haven't mentioned this a lot. I've tried to refrain. But for me, when you talk about the fashion Uh girl Uh of that family, baby, her name is Ashley Simpson. (laughs) Her name is Ashley Simpson. Are you kidding me? So basically the conclusion of the story is that Ashley did everything better than Jessica did. (laughs) To me. To me too. It's never been more undeniable to me than having just sat through the last three or four days listening and watching and consuming everything that either of them ever did. (laughs) It's really no comparison. Which again, looping back to our earlier conversation, is sort of psychotic when you think about how the whole thing was positioned to begin with. To have it sort of shake out this way 20 years later is very strange. And of course, as Troy has alluded to, Jessica has gone on to become a fucking billionaire based on the back of affordable clothing and shoes that are sold in department stores. Mm -hmm. And kind of had a little mini resurgence with her memoir where she admitted to having been an alcoholic and it was actually a very endearing and revelational memoir where she talked about how much she struggled with addiction in a way that I don't think anybody really knew about. Yeah, and I think where Ashley sort of took a backseat and was like, I am not cut out for this level of criticism. I'm just not and I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And if you guys hate me so much, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Jessica then went on to live what I would imagine are the worst years of her life. Right. Post all of that, the weight fluctuation and the obsession with everybody talking about how she looks and her getting pregnant, but then being judged for gaining weight, having a baby. Her life took such a dark tabloid fixture turn totally that nobody could have predicted. Right. But also her bank account took a turn for the better. So in some ways, I don't feel badly. (laughs) What are Jessica and Ashley's legacies as we look back I mean particularly as pop stars but I guess we can expand that to mean in the broader entertainment space if there are legacies to speak of here what do you think that they are for each of them I think that for Ashley her legacy will always be that she released this perfect album and it has this hold on millennials and I even remember reading a lot of interviews with John Shanks where he would say no matter what I amount to people always come up to me and bring up Ashley's album oh my god that's incredible wow because he really is quite prolific yeah he said that he was at an award show or something or an event and Haim had come up to him and they were like, how did you produce that Ashley Simpson album? Oh my God. That's amazing. I can totally actually hear the connection between Haim and that album, to be honest with you. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So I think that that will always be her legacy. Of course, SNL will be her real true lasting legacy for like the masses, which is unfortunate. And for Jessica, I think her legacy will be that she was one of the top tier pop girls from one of the greatest eras of pop resurgence in history. And even though she wasn't the number one If you are a person of a particular age, you have deep, 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 emotionally rooted memories with Jessica Simpson. Uh Uh-huh. I completely agree. I also want to say that I think that they both have legacies about how to expand pop stardom 
in the reality show and then ultimately in the social media era. Like I think they were both pioneers in the same way that MTV in its original form radically shifted the way that pop stardom operated in terms of creating this sort of visual language and world for pop stars. The early 2000s was also another moment where the idea of exposure to a pop star's personal life in some way that eventually would produce the social media era that we live in now, they had a very innate understanding of how to work that prior to that being a real formula. Now, having access to pop stars' personal lives and having that wrapped into the whole narrative of their music and everything feels essential to almost every single pop star. But back then, that wasn't necessarily such a lingua franca that everybody was familiar with. And Joe, Ashley, and Jessica provided a template that I think we see play out with almost every single pop star to this moment in a way. I think that's their biggest impact more than any sort of musical footprint that either of them left. That reiteration of pop stardom for this era feels like maybe their most important legacy. These boots are made for walking That's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you all right, so let's talk about the pop pantheon. Now, I want to be clear about this before we get into this discussion because I'm about to share a hot take. Ooh, okay. This is about their ranking in pop stardom. So we have to remove the fact that, of course, Jessica continues to be a celebrity. She's had this career as a billionaire and Ashley has this celebrity marriage and whatever. We're talking about their position in the pop pantheon, the pantheon of pop stars. Right. I think Ashley is in tier five, if I'm being honest with you. Okay. And I go back to asking my boyfriend to name a single song of hers. I think, yes, if you were around <laughs> Four Pieces of Me, that is an iconic moment and autobiography in general. But I think, has that extended beyond anybody that lived through that exact moment? I don't really think so. I think Ashley ultimately is probably a one hit wonder to most people, if that. To me, that squares her solidly in tier five. And I kind of argue that maybe Jessica is also in tier five. Really? That's a little bit tougher because she has had a handful of hits. I think maybe she slides herself into tier four, but I think in terms of her pop stardom, if you're not me and you who are psychotic chroniclers of this shit, (laughs) how many of Jessica's singles actually live on, even for people of our age, the casual pop fan of our age, how many songs do you think they can name of Jessica Simpson? I would guess maybe one. With you. With you. Maybe. Exactly. Is she also kind of in tier five or is she tier four? That's the debate. Oh God, now I'm rethinking. Well, what do you think? Do you agree with my assessments and feel free to argue me? Well, I do agree. I believe that Ashley, as much as it pains me, as much as I try to do mental gymnastics to put her in tier one. Yes, we love her. (laughs) I was like, she's up there with Brittany and Mariah. Hello. And Diana Ross. Yes, her mother-in-law. I do believe that she is unfortunately tier five. I think she's like a cult classic. Yes, right. A cult classic for sure. Yes. And Jessica, I put at tier four. Yeah. I do agree with you with the music assessment. It's almost undeniable when you're looking at it simply from a music space. She probably would be five. She just feels tier four to me. I get what you're saying. The thing that makes it complex is what you said, which is that she was part of a moment that elevates her and she gets uttered in the same breath of this very important and formative moment Mm -hmm. of pop stars for like an entire generation. Yeah. I'm confused about how much weight to give that because she doesn't have enduring hits. Yeah. The reality show is really what I think she's more remembered for at this point. Yeah. Which doesn't exist without the pop career. Could Jessica go on tour right now and anybody would go see her perform? I don't think so. I don't think I would. I 
know I wouldn't. What would be the set list of the tour? What would she sing? <laughs> she has five songs that anybody really would care about or remember. Yeah, that's really true. It really is mostly nostalgia yeah. that lands her in that spot. That's interesting. I just never really thought about it. In my mind, because we grew up during the time, she just feels so much more impactful in that space than she is. Yeah, I mean... I hate to keep bringing this up, but when I asked Jack about that and he couldn't name one of her songs. Oh, God. He's a very informed and smart pop music lover. It's not that he just doesn't know that era. I said Mandy Moore. He said Candy in one second. Right. He knows. So that was the thing that I was like, okay, she's forgotten. Yeah. Her pop legacy has not really sustained in any meaningful way. And the music is trash. I'm sorry. Most of her music is bad. It just is. The few songs that are good are good, but most of that music really is garbage. It truly is. You know what I will also say is that even just generally, I think when it comes to music, people are so fickle. Like, look at Madonna. There are people who can barely name a Madonna song. No, for sure. And who look at her as this internet quack. Well, yes. And I'm like, oh my God. Or even people will message me about Gwen Stefani. Yeah. Not knowing that she was in a band. Yeah, I know. That is for sure. But I honestly feel that if you went to a not pop culturally fanatic person who is exactly our age and lived through this, I still don't think that they would be able to name more than maybe one or maybe two Jessica Simpson songs. I agree with that. I think that they would name With You and I Think I'm In Love if they were like a real deep cut girl. Yeah, maybe. And maybe Irresistible. You're right. There's just no way to debate it. I kind of think she's tier five. Oh my God. I know. It was not what I was expecting going into this, but then I kind of thought about it and I was like, I kind of think so. I kind of think she is. Yeah. Okay, you're right. Damn. I can't debate it. It's true. Yeah. She's a tier five girl. God, I won't sleep tonight. Ah! <laughs> All right. I'm banging the gavel on that. Okay. Okay. It's official. It's official. All right. So last question. What is an underrated either Jessica or Ashley song. I have a feeling I know which one you're going to go with here <laughs> so that we can send the show out on. Something that we didn't give enough shine to. Maybe an I Am Me song. Maybe it's a Bittersweet World song that we could send the show out on. There's so many underrated Ashley songs, but I'm going to go with an I Am Me song. Mm -hmm. I got to go Dancing Alone. Yeah. My love for that song is like played at my funeral kind of vibes. Yeah. <laughs> Dancing Alone to the afterlife. <laughs> no, literally my ghost working in my funeral. <laughs> I just think it's a perfect pop song. I love the 80s Cynthia, Madonna, yeah. Debbie Harry thing that's going on there. Yeah, great song. All right, so let's go out on Dancing Alone. Troy Rikini, it is always a delight and a pleasure to do this with you. And I am so excited to share the stage with you in a couple of weeks. We're going to have so much fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. You are beyond welcome. I love being on this show. It feels like home. And I'm honored that you asked me to do the live show. I hope that I live up to the moment. Oh, please. Oh, please. I hope I don't flop on stage, but I'm very no, excited too. No question. <laughs> to talk about your girly please there's no way well thank you so much i love you i love you too all right so there you have it pop pantheon jessica and ashley simpson both 
tier five pop stars. The judgment is rendered, Jesus. Thank you so much to the incredible Troy McKinney for being such an amazing guest. And of course, to Russ Martin for everything he does to make the show happen every week. To PJ Vernietti for his help editing this episode. And to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch at poppantheonpod.com. Our Patreon show, Pop Pantheon All Access, is at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Gorgeous, gorgeous, New York, spooky gorgeous on October 27th. And in LA, November 10th. Tickets for both will be in the show notes of this episode. And of course, our live show, Pop Pantheon Live, Brittany's music, memoir, and legacy will be at the Crawford in Pasadena on November 2nd. So I hope to see some of you there. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.